welcome to the Diplo Woman Podcast, where we will be talking with and about incredible women mediators, facilitators, negotiators, ambassadors, peacemakers, peace builders, and more. I am Karma Ekmekci, and I will be your host in this journey of mainstreaming the women, peace, and security agenda into our lifestyles. With a focus on the Arab region, the Diplomen Podcast comes to you in collaboration with the Isan Fars Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut, and is made possible by the generous support of UN Women. The Arabic subtitled video edition is available on the Diplomen Podcast YouTube channel. We're thinking out loud with Dr. Munira Khalifa Al Khalifa in this new episode of the Diplomen Podcast. Dr. Munira is the executive director of Muhammad bin Mubarak Al Khalifa Academy for Diplomatic Studies. She is a graduate of Oxford University, both master's and PhD, where she was the first Bahraini woman, actually the first Bahraini, to be awarded the Clarendon Scholarship. Uh, Dr. Munira is the highest ranking female diplomat in the Bahraini Ministry of Foreign Affairs. She is a mother of four. Dr. Munira, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you with us on the Diplomen podcast. I'm very happy to be here with you and I'm very happy to share whatever experience that I have um, and very happy to start this conversation. I'm sure this conversation is going to be inspiring to many in the Arab world, women and men amongst the youth especially. Uh, Dr. Munira, you initiated the Muhammad bin Mubarak Al Khalifa Academy for Diplomatic Studies. I just want to start by asking you what triggered this idea? Why did you wake up one morning and say this is something we need to do in Bahrain? Well, this is a very important question. The Academy for Diplomatic Studies, uh, what we call the MBMA, for, for it's easier, um, <clears throat> started off as a diplomatic institute. Uh, it started off in 2016. I had just graduated from my PhD. Uh, and getting the academic background um, really showed me the importance of having the opportunity in which you could, in whatever career path, develop yourself. Um, in creating these learning opportunities. Um, Sheikh Khalid bin Ahmed al-Khalifa was the Minister of Foreign Affairs then, and he was uh, a mentor for me. And so we had a conversation in which um, we both agreed that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs needed a diplomatic institute. Mm -hmm. He trusted me with uh, establishing it um, and then heading it. Uh, and then His Majesty King Hamad transformed the institute into an academy in which the scope grew, the responsibilities grew. Uh, and so the idea was that, um, you know, from its inception, we, we saw um, the academy develop into something that now has a, a very prominent role to play. Uh, so what we do briefly is we recruit diplomats. So we work um, very closely with young diplomats. We train them, uh, but we also train diplomats throughout their careers um, from, you know, juniors to ambassadors. So we prep diplomats from, um, you know, ambassadors coming in and uh, bringing in their experiences, but also prior to their posts. It's a very vibrant place. Um, it's an institution that runs on Bahraini youth. Um, so the majority of our 
employees are in their 30s, um, maybe even younger. They're full of energy. Um, they're ones who also get their voices heard because they're the ones who bring in these ideas. Um, and we continuously try to revise how we train diplomats because diplomats need to be you know, <laughs> ready for the world today. And this world keeps on changing in such a fast pace. Absolutely, we're in a world that's in flux and we need to adapt, adjust and accommodate as we go by. Um, this academy is reserved currently only uh, for Bahraini diplomats, is that correct? Uh, yes, so in terms of our main programs, um, we cater to Bahrainis, but we also receive uh, requests. So we've had requests from the uh, government of uh, Yemen, for example, um, because they had um, you know, very limited resources. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, re requests from various different you know, entities, uh, but also we have an international diplomats program uh, mm -hmm. where we host, it's called Ziafa. We host international diplomats from all around the world for two weeks. Um, the idea behind this is that they uh, learn about Bahrain, but they also develop their skills. Uh, this year, our theme was Asia. So we've had people come in from embassy, from countries where we don't have embassies. So for example, we've had Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Laos, Myanmar. We had like a long list of um, countries that we know very little about. As a, as a people, and they know very little um, about uh, Bahrain. So it was a very interesting opportunity for Bahraini diplomats to also engage. Um, they sometimes agreed with one another and often disagreed with one another, which is the world of diplomacy as we know it. So this is something that we take great pride in. And on a continuous basis, we, we revise and we try to think of different nations that would benefit um, from this type of programs. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm sure many would be very interested to explore this international uh, program that you, uh, that you offer uh, and, of course, get acquainted to Bahrain. Let me ask you this. You head a committee in your Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, that's called the Equal Opportunities Committee, which I understand is part of your diversity and inclusion arm. I'm not sure how many foreign ministries in our region have this at the moment. So can you tell us a little bit about this committee, uh, what the mandate of this committee is, what kind of activities uh, do you conduct? Are you doing any sort of peer-to-peer -peer activities with other foreign ministries in the region? Sure. Um, heading this uh, committee has been, uh, for me, one of my greatest responsibilities. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, let me just give you a background about the creation of this Equal Opportunities Committee. Um, these committees exist in all arms of the government. Um, it's, it was an idea that was launched by the Supreme Council of Women uh, in the Kingdom of Bahrain, in which they uh, wanted to ensure some type of monitoring mechanism uh, however, what they also wanted to do is create a sense of accountability uh, in which every entity felt that they were accountable uh, towards, you know, creating opportunities. And they, they named it equal opportunities because they wanted to make sure that the opportunities themselves, rather than just quotas for positions, that opportunities from, uh, you know, the start of a woman's career uh, was ensured. So there is a series of questions that we as a committee receive uh, on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. And 
are uh, accountable to these questions. So for example, it's um, in terms of pay, in terms of training opportunities, in terms of employment, in terms of women ranking at very high leadership positions. Um, they ask for all these detailed questions. And then when we answer these questions, um, you realize what challenges exist. So I'll bring in my experience specifically in the field of diplomacy here. Uh, it became tricky because the numbers were not the numbers we wanted to see. Um, we And then I, I said to His Excellency the Minister, who is also a big supporter um, of, of this committee, um, he said, why? <laughs> why is it that women will shy away from this opportunity or that opportunity? And then we had an honest conversation. So we had a few sessions uh, a few years ago during COVID, uh, virtually, with women who were appointed abroad, with women who um, did not sign up for certain diplomatic posts in which we asked them why why and yeah there was honestly why um, and then the the type of answers that came out were, were shocking for me uh, because you know the diplomatic code was written in the 70s uh, it was revised later on but it wasn't written with women um, in their perspective. Uh, so, and this was just a virtue and a reflection of the establishment as it was. Um, and so certain things like um, uh, childcare support, um, you know, childcare support only happens after, or like the type of uh, the financial help yes. only uh, comes in after three years, for example. And so when a woman is working as a diplomat, um, she, and she would be appointed to a place like London, for example, where childcare is very expensive. It would be very difficult. I can imagine that there may have been something related to the spouse as well, no? <laughs> it often yeah. comes up. <laughs> and this was, uh, for me, when I first started, this is a funny story. I had a friend who um, was working on, uh, he was heading operations. And so he would be also responsible to purchase, to produce these business cards and so on and so forth. And he called me and he said, um, you know, our ambassador to Belgium uh, then uh, was a woman and uh, she wanted a business card for her and for her spouse. And so in Arabic, we always produced <clears throat> Safir and Haram Safir. So mm -hmm. the ambassador and then the, <laughs> the, the wife of the ambassador. Yes. And he said, so what do I write in English or in Arabic on the business card for the, for the spouse? Because he had never been put in that situation. Um, and this is another interesting, um, you know, observation that we saw. Many of the women who were appointed or who accepted these um, opportunities were either single um, or were um, near retirement age in which their children had already uh, grown and their universities abroad. And so it was a challenge for women with young children um, because in Bahrain, we have a massive support system. Um, and childcare is very easy, accessible, um, financially, you know, it's, uh, it's not expensive. So when these opportunities come, um, the woman diplomat, the female diplomat has to think twice because there is so much that she has to give up on. And so as part of the Equal Opportunities Unit, we're working with officials and we're working with the Civil Service Bureau to make sure that this is no longer an obstacle. Um, whether it's in terms of compensation or whether it's in terms of the structural elements, the environment has to really harness and has to really encourage women to 
um, you know, progress in their careers. This is very interesting. And we've had these conversations before uh, bilaterally or privately on, on the importance of really applying that gender lens to these codes or these operating uh, rules and procedures that conduct our, uh, you know, day-to-day -day lives in public institutions, whether it's the foreign ministry or, or others. Are you embarking on some sort of, you know, workshop or uh, uh, exercise on revisiting these, these codes and these uh, procedures? We are, um, and we're involving both men and women because it's very important. Absolutely. Uh, and we are taking all of these into account. Um, part of it is uh, reviewing the codes. Part of it is reviewing the laws. Part of it is reviewing the policies and the procedures. Part of it is, some of them are quick wins. Some of them just required us to really take into account that you know, the school year starts at this date, so the appointments have to happen at this date, just to take into account that they have a family. Yeah, of course, it's very, these are very important points. So these type of um, workshops that we conducted, what we did was we involved the women themselves. So we involved um, women who were appointed as diplomats, who came back, who struggled sometimes, who didn't struggle at all for whatever reason. Um, and we had these very honest workshops in which we listened to the things that we wanted to hear, but we also more importantly listened to the things that we didn't want to hear. Um, and I was blessed because the minister actually walked in virtually, <laughs> entered virtually to some of them, and, and he heard um, their experiences. And this was a very uh, empowering experience for women to you know, be hosted virtually and speak up and say, look, this didn't work for me. Um, this worked for me, but I needed more help in this. I would wanted um, more mentoring. And so based on these uh, also observations, we introduced or we're introducing a mentorship program uh, in which high ranking um, you know, female diplomats will mentor younger uh, female diplomats. Um, and then these conversations can be very honest, um, uh, conversations about burnout, conversations about- Mental health. Yes, gender stereotypes, uh, worrying about certain things in society that another woman in this field will understand and would be able to reflect on. Well, it's very inspiring to hear uh, about the work that you are doing. I do hope that uh, many other institutions uh, feel inspired as well and embark on this, uh, on this very important um, exercise. I heard in your, in your voice uh, always mentioning that there was some sort of leadership that allowed for whether the academy to form, whether for this Equal Opportunities Committee to form. I keep hearing, you know, in the background, political will, political will, how important political will is for these things to advance, for issues of gender equality, matters of gender equality and other matters of inclusion to advance. How important is political will and what advice do you have for others in the region to garner the support of their leaderships on similar matters? Well, Karma, this is a very interesting question for me personally. Let me just tell you um, from my personal experience, I left my PhD, <clears throat> voluntarily entered the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is a very male-dominated environment. I think this is a general statement in terms of also other ministries of foreign affairs, but especially when it comes to the Arab world. So I had um, 
all my you know weapons out <laughs> i i came in charged uh, to face any type of you know gender discrimination i had thought that i would fight this fight that i had to prove myself and I was surprised. Um, I, I didn't have to fight that particular fight because there was political will, um, because there was um, there was a, a gentleman, of course, there was a gentleman uh, at the head of that institution who saw my voice as equal, sometimes even more, you know, equal, I don't know. More equal than others. <laughs> More equal than others. Um, I was I was heard, um, and I didn't feel in any sense that um, this was an issue for me in that particular situation. So it was. If it wasn't for that, um, this would be a very different uh, environment. It mm -hmm. would be very difficult to introduce all of these things. Um, but at this point, I think um, political will has to be institutional. It cannot be based on the individual. Um, it cannot be just something that rests with, um, you know, someone who was appointed in a position and understands that. It has to be, uh, you know, in the policies, in the procedures. It has to be embedded in the DNA, uh, baked into the DNA of the institution. Yeah, I'll be very honest. I mean, the political will exists institutionally. We're seeing progress and we're far more advanced than other ministries of foreign affairs. But still, sometimes you see that one person come in and make this comment. And um, and, and so it's a culture. Um, sometimes it's also a culture in which the young women come in and ask, can I do this and can I uh, do that? Uh, whereas, you know, their male counterparts don't ask these questions. Um, so it's also education, it also goes to the household, it's also, so it's a cultural shift. Um, but when, when you're talking about the institution, I think it's um, very important to embed it, as you, say, as you said, in the DNA. You're a mother of four. So we spoke about childcare, we spoke about, you know, the challenges uh, of being a diplomat, um, a female diplomat. How did you navigate, or how do you still navigate uh, these uh, these uh, sort of uh, um, sometimes you know difficult situations or uh, uh, how much sacrifice do you have to do to to balance between and I know this is a little bit of a cliche question that men don't get often enough do you balance your personal life with your professional life but I think a lot of us do face this I mean do have to make choices about travel about uh, the, the projects we choose to embark on, how much time they re require of us, how much you know, opportunity costs away from the family, uh, away from our, from our children. How do you do this with four kids? Well, honestly, um, for me, let me just say this. Um, my role as a mom uh, defines me more than anything else. Uh, I take great pride and in being uh, a mother of four <laughs> i've always wanted a big family i wanted five girls growing up uh, i now have a boy and three girls um but the the joy that i get out of being with them is something that gives me the energy to keep on going uh so sometimes i selfishly spend hours with them because I recharge um, and it gives me the ability to say, okay, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to keep doing this because I'm doing this for a future 
um, in which they will be able to prosper. So it's it gave me personally on a selfish basis a boost. How I managed to do it, I have a very supportive husband um, who takes his role as a father very seriously. Um, he also has these questions. Uh, I know more often than not, women have to face these issues, but he also faces these issues. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> He works in uh, private equity, he has a very stressful job, and so he also tries to rush back in time to make it in time for their bedtime and read them a story. And um, so he also tries to work around travel, he starts to think about how I can be there for them um, as, as a father. So it's a shared, uh, you know, for, for me, I wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't shared. Um, so one, it's a shared responsibility between both of us. Um, and two, because I live in a community where uh, childcare is very affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother lives about seven minutes away. God bless her. <laughs> God bless all mothers. Yes, my parents are both retired, um, and so they very willingly help and support with my my kids. So um, I don't think I would be able to do what I do if I didn't have a support system. And um, if I didn't have a partner or family who didn't see the need um, for me to have an actual balanced life. So I would have friends and family come in and say, go travel, don't worry about the kids, we've got them, we'll do this part. So I have also some of my female friends who say, you know, you're making us very proud, keep on going. And this just keeps you going because you feel like people, you know, are invested in this as well. Yes. Let me ask you this. What has been so far the most challenging juncture that taught you an important lesson on how to navigate in your leadership position, because you do hold a very high level uh, decision-making position. So what can you share with us from this experience? Well, let me just be honest from the beginning. Um, Our conversation till now has been a very positive conversation. This does not mean that it's been uh, a very fluffy, rosy (laughs) process or journey. Um, It's not easy. Um, obviously, um, it's anything but easy. So from convincing my father that I was able to go abroad and study, um, which was not easy, um, and I, imagine. I developed great negotiation skills and lobbied <laughs> um, at a very young age. Um, and he was upset uh, with me. Uh, I, I remember, I mean, he was very close to us, but he wouldn't agree to take me to the airport for example, wouldn't even hug me in a way that because he was he was worried and upset. Um, I was the youngest of four and my brother managed to study abroad and my two sisters didn't. And so for him, you know, it was like, why would you come in um, 17 years old and say, I'm, I'm moving? You're destabilizing the system. You're, you're, you're disrupting the system. <laughs> And it was funny because I remember him telling me uh, very consciously, you know, in Arabic, he said, in Bahraini, which means um, put your brains in your head. Okay, make sure your brains are in your head. And I remember thinking, what, what does that mean? You know, um, my brains are in my head. But, uh, he wanted me to really think um, uh, that I'm there academically and I'm there responsibly. Um, 
And fast forward, when I got the scholarship from Oxford, I'd called him um, and I told him, um, you know, I got this opportunity, but I miss home and I'm done with academic life and I want to come back and work a little bit before. I, and he spent an hour on the phone convincing me to stay on. Um, and so it was just, you know, for me, interesting to see that that shift. Um, but also, I think um, in terms of challenges, the challenge of balance, um, the challenge of giving everything to your job um, and then giving everything at home and then giving everything to yourself. And um, in terms of just stereotypes, um, sometimes it, it gets to you, uh, especially when you're, you're doing a lot. Um, and I'll say this very comfortably, I, I had faced um, challenges in the work environment, whether it is in my institution or when I work with other institutions, mm -hmm. uh, less because I'm a woman and more because I'm young. Um, and, uh, and I get these comments that honestly make my blood boil um, and questions about, oh, what year were you born? Um, <laughs> oh, and this year I was already appointed in, um, you know, so it, 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 it makes me feel that um, the challenge there is to convince them that you're worthy of this position. Um, and at the beginning, I used to say, oh, you know, there was a prime minister who was um, elected at this age, and there's a minister who was younger than me elected at this place. Um, and then I realized that, no, I, I don't really have to engage. Um, my work will speak for itself. Um, but if um, your audience, uh, I mean, a big group of your audience are young people, um, I do say this, don't let this get to you, because this is something that exists across the board. Um, young people in positions, I think, is something refreshing. Um, it gives such a boost to any institution. And um, that responsibility is a big responsibility um, on us to, to make sure that, you know, this um, this doesn't stop. We, we, we need this. Well, it definitely resonates with me being this idea of you're young and you're a woman. So it's like a double sort of challenge that we need to always uh, address or face uh, until we reconcile ourselves with that and say, you know, we're doing our best and our best is sometimes better than what you're all doing. So, <laughs> um, but if it's any consolation, you know, our Arab society is a young society. I mean, more than 50%, if not more than 60% of the Arab uh, world is, is under uh, 35. So it's a, it's a youthful society. And I think that um, the only way for us to transform our region, for it to become more inclusive, more peaceful, more productive, is to see more and more young uh, leadership. Uh, young leaders in the in the right places. I want to take this conversation uh, back to the Diplomatic Institute and ask you about the major results or the prominent results that you have achieved in the last, uh, uh, you know, a few years. I mean, you said you established it in 2016. How is it um, growing and what's your vision for this institute? Um, well, it's been <laughs> growing remarkably, um, quite honestly. We um, we started off really focusing on recruitment um, and making sure that we have the right person for the job. 
Um, then we uh, introduced these programs that run throughout the year, um, including languages. Mm -hmm. um, we introduce um, also mandatory training hours. So we've said to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, look, you want to develop and to really meet the standards um, and really progress, you need to devote 70 hours a year in which you're learning. Whatever it is that you're learning, you're learning. You're learning a language, you're attending a lecture, you're attending a seminar series, uh, you're listening to an ambassador uh, sharing their experiences, you're learning about consular, whatever it is, um, yes. you're learning. Um, and that was something that was revolutionary. It was something for us that um, there was some type of resistance at the beginning, but then uh, we realized that by introducing these mandatory hours um, of learning, that we had a lot to do. Um, we, we were able to introduce different types of, of, of programs. Now, I think where we are um, is we're looking at uh, the human aspect mm -hmm. of, of diplomats. And this is something that we've recently um, introduced because I'm part of a diplomatic committee in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that decides on diplomatic appointments and promotions and so on. And I was working with a team at the HR in which we were looking at the career path of a diplomat. And it was four plus two plus four plus two. Um, different countries have different averages. Some of them have three plus two or three plus three. But when you look at that, you, you see ahead of you or in front of you, the life of someone who will be uprooted uh, so many times. Um, so you pack up and leave and you pack up and leave and you pack up and leave. Um, and when we look at how we prepare these diplomats um, in terms of their pre-appointment, we give them a crash course in language. We tell them a few lectures about the place. We tell them how to run the embassy, but we don't care about their, you know, their well-being in terms of preparing them for transitioning, um, how to develop you know, these skills um, to adapt, uh, the culture shock, the child who's just been uprooted from a school and has to make new friends. And, and so we've tried to humanize this process um, and to look at this in a lens of these are human beings with <laughs> complex emotions and to avoid a risk of burnout, uh, to make sure that these diplomats who are our responsibility fully thrive as human beings, mm -hmm. uh, we really need to make sure that the programs take into account this, the human side, the mental health side, and the family side, the spouse, the partner, the, the child, um, the teenager, uh, the mom, the, the older mom who's accompanying, whatever it is, that family is also part of the story. And so um, my vision for this academy is to um, be, um, I mean, if you look at diplomatic institutes and academies, um, we have an identity crisis. <laughs> uh, we, we try to be several things at once. Um, some of us try to be a university um, in terms of being degree granting. Some of us try to be a think tank in which we publish sure. policy papers. Um, much of this is not really uh, impartial because you represent, even if you have, you know, this 
um, because you represent a side, a ministry. Um, some of us try to be, um, you know, training development uh, a center. So there's so much recruiting arm. So we're an HR function. There's so much that goes into it. Um, and what I'd learned from my experiences in meeting other diplomatic institutes and academies is that we have to be agile and we have to be, um, you know, responsive to change. And we really need to make sure that um, we take into account the actual need. Um, we need to equip diplomats to allow them to prosper. Mm -hmm. And so if our research will support that, then it will support that. Um, and what I'm trying to do is also to share our experiences uh, regionally and internationally. Yes, this is very important. I think there's you have much to, to share with others, especially in the region. And, and we're starting to do that um, because we've had successes and we've made mistakes and we've learned from our mistakes. And so the idea is for us to also share our mistakes so that others don't fall in these mistakes. Um, and really we, we see the impact tangibly on diplomats. Um, and we see it when they walk into the academy. Um, we, we have a temporary floor across the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They come in happy. They come in smiling. They, they come in because they feel it's a safe environment for them to read, to debate, to engage with others, uh, to share their experiences. Mm -hmm. So it's a sense also of, of, of belonging because um, this is a big part uh, of what we do. Um, when we make sure that diplomats can engage, can honestly say, look, the consular part really killed me. Um, <laughs> I had to deal with people doing X, Y, Z. Uh, and then it, that type of engagement really builds this you know, environment in which they're sharing their experiences, they're sharing their knowledge. Um, and so this is something that we take uh, great pride in. What can you tell the Arab youth? What advice do you have to the Arab youth, men and women, on achieving a more gender equal society, but also, you know, having more parity in specifically the field of diplomacy, negotiation, mediation, peace building? My son is uh, six turning seven and uh, on careers day in school, uh, he chose to be a diplomat <laughs> like his mother. Cute. Uh, and this was the first time in which I saw him seeing me as a role model rather than seeing his father uh, as a role model. And I remember his teacher, who was also a woman, come to me and say, thank you so much. Um, for, for changing the perception um, of, of the boys, uh, because this is where it starts. Absolutely, it uh, starts at that age. And it's made me so proud. Um, and I must say, my daughter also says that, but it made me more proud uh, because he saw me um, as you know, a successful woman uh, that he wants to also know, become successful. And, and he attached success to me being a woman as well. Um, and so I think my advice would be uh, to be role models uh, for the younger generation. Uh, I think the change is coming um, in a slow way, um, slower than we want to see it, especially when it comes to gender. Um, I don't believe in parachutes. Um, I've seen parachutes uh, happen. Um, and happen early in, in this region, in the Gulf and Bahrain. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I believe in processes uh, because, uh, you know, when you parachute someone in uh, and you introduce quotas, it does not really uh, ensure change the way that building a sustainable process would. Uh, and so for us to see change grow, we need the individual. Um, we need the role of the household. We need the role of the parents. We need the role of the school. Um, we need all of these institutions to work with one another. Um, and for us to see change picking up speed. Um, and I believe that change will pick up speed and will accelerate because I, I believe in the young people. Um, I'll say this as well. I, I often feel like I'm young in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but I went to the Prime Minister's office uh, in the Kingdom of Bahrain a couple of days ago, and I felt old. <laughs> and it was such a beautiful feeling to feel. It was, it was just like... Breath of fresh air. It was a breath of fresh air. It was um, young people working together, um, trusted with high positions, challenging processes, being honest, reflecting in a way, bringing in, a, bringing in fresh energy and fresh uh, thinking. Um, and so I don't know if my advice makes any sense, but I believe that um, we all have a responsibility. Um, and I would like people to take this responsibility very seriously. Um, so it's less of an maybe advice and more of um, just asking people um, to actually take this responsibility. To invest, to invest in this uh, way of yeah. life, to invest in this way of thinking. To look at women in their relation to others, not to look at you know, the women around you as, oh, she's a mother or she's a sister or she's a daughter or she's someone else's. She, she is in, in, in her existence, she is. <laughs> and then she becomes um, you know, the relation to others. And so when you see uh, the woman being the individual that she is, the one who's capable of inspiring her boy, the one who's capable of inspiring communities, then we could see this change accelerate at the pace that we want it to accelerate to. Well, change will definitely pick up speed with role models like you in our Arab world. Dr. Munina Khalifa Al-Khalifa, thank you for being with us on the Diploma Podcast. Thank you very much for the work that you do. Um, I think it's very important. Maybe the advice that I gave also mirrors what it is that you do here um, with the Diplo Women podcast. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you are also a very inspirational character. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you.